Tonight, we're joined by two distinguished journalists with a strong Boston connection. Peter Canellos is an award-winning writer and former editorial page editor of the Boston Globe and executive editor of Politico. He's the editor of the New York Times bestseller, Last Lion, The Fall and Rise of Ted Kennedy. Farrah Stockman joined the New York Times editorial board in 2020 after covering politics, social movements and race for the national desk. She previously spent 16 years at the Boston Globe, nearly half of that time as the paper's foreign policy reporter in Washington, DC. She also served as a columnist and an editorial board member of the Globe, winning a Pulitzer Prize for commentary in 2016. She's the author of a forthcoming book, American Made, What Happens to People When Work Disappears? They're here to talk about Peter's new book, The Great Dissenter, the story of John Marshall Harlan, America's judicial hero. Farah and Peter, welcome. Thank you, Chris. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Um, I love seeing in the chat where everyone is, is, is writing in from or tuning in from, so that's great. Keep it coming. Um, it's a real delight to be here tonight with Peter Canellis. Peter is an old journal, journalism mentor of mine. I worked for the Boston Globe for 16 years. I think I spent 14 of them under Peter. And in, in recent years, he's talked with such enthusiasm about this book he's been working on, The Great Dissenter. So this is a real uh, pleasure for me to interview him tonight uh, about his book. Um, I can talk to Peter anytime I want. So I think tonight is, a, is also a, a chance for you all to, to get your questions in. So I'm gonna kick off the conversation uh, tonight with, with some questions for Peter, and then I'm gonna turn it over to you. So please do put questions in the chat. Please do uh, tell us your thoughts. Um, uh, in the chat and in the Q and A, um, I will try to be monitoring both. Um, so we want to hear from you. Um, okay, Peter, you have a law degree. You, you see the world uh, through this legal lens. Um, tell us a little bit about how you came across this extraordinary story. How did how did you get started on it? Um, first of all, thank you so much, Vera. It's an honor to be uh, to be interviewed by you after knowing uh, of so many of your triumphant interviews in the past. I uh, never quite envisioned being on the other side of the of the inquiry, though. Um, and it's also a great honor to be back at the Boston Athenaeum, uh, which is one of my most favorite places. And uh, as I was telling Victoria O'Malley, it, it really put a smile on my face when I got an email from her right after the book was announced saying uh, the Athenaeum wanted to do an event. So, so it's great to be here. Um, I have followed the career of John Marshall Harlan uh, for basically 30 years since I was a law student myself. Um, and I sort of came upon him organically in the sense of uh, part of legal study, you know, is reading these case books and following the progression of the law. And it's almost a, a purposely dry process of reading these rather intricate cases. And then there was one person who spoke with a dramatically different voice, who brought completely different considerations into his opinions, who seemed to have 
uh, a sort of innate sense of justice. And then the more you studied and the more you realized, you saw that um, his dissents in these cases uh, during the years that he was on the court from 1877 until 1911 um, are much more consistent with the law of today than the majority opinion. So it's an interesting kind of question to come into your mind because you know, we've been uh, 230 years reading Supreme Court opinions. Uh, there have been a couple of hundred people who've served as Supreme Court justices. We know enough to know who got it right. And here was somebody who stood alone in case after case and was vindicated by time. So it makes you wonder, well, what, how did he see things differently? What is it that, that made his life different? And then in 2005, when I was the Washington bureau chief for the Globe, uh, we were covering the, you were in the bureau too, Sarah. We were covering, uh, we were covering the Alito and Roberts nominations. And one night in our office, I was reading this large uh, print encyclopedia of the Supreme Court and just happened to read the Harlan entry and saw a reference to Robert Harlan, who was widely believed to be Harlan's half brother, uh, an African-American man, the son of an enslaved woman and Harlan's father who became um, a very well-known civil rights leader uh, in his own right, actually before Harlan, uh, before John Harlan, um, and, and interacted with him, had a real relationship with him. So obviously, in some sense, that relationship was, was a key to how Harlan managed to see things differently, especially in cases involving African-Americans. And that was the germ of the book. I mean, it's fascinating because, I mean, even the title of the book, The Great Dissenter, is a bit of a paradox. I, I mean, the idea that, you know, he was alone. <laughs> he, he was dissenting, and which meant that his arguments didn't carry the day, which meant that he was a lonely voice that was um, against the majority. So I guess I wondered if you could say just a little bit about the purpose of dissent and how it has informed uh, later generations. What, you know, it seems like he was largely ignored or forgotten by mainstream society back then, but what, like, what do we take from this dissent now? Well, Harlan is by far the most powerful example of how dissents become law over time. Um, before Harlan, there were several famous dissents. There was one, um, Justice Benjamin Curtis dissented in the, in the notorious Dred Scott case in 1858, and then promptly quit the court in protest, you know, packed up his belongings and left. Um, and it was a, a strong, powerful statement of uh, opposition. There had been some statements of opposition also when the great John Marshall was the, the chief justice and was thwarting Jeffersonian initiatives at there was a Jeffersonian William Johnson who was on the court who would sort of register kind of principled objections. Harlan's objections were principled as well, but he actually conceived of them as sort of roadmaps to the future to overturn the cases. And to give you a sense of what these dissents were like, you have to sort of understand the times a little bit and you have to understand the cases themselves. During that period on the court, again, from 1877 to 1911, Two big things happened in society. You know, we're now looking back 150 years. One, uh, segregation took hold. And 
you might wonder today how it is that 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 system of repression became so ingrained in the American system that it led to 70 years of, of total exclusion for African-Americans and a century and a half of racial tensions and strife that are obviously still reverberating today. It also was a period of dramatic economic inequality. You know, we all today uh, go to Newport and look at the mansions there and admire the gilt work in the ballroom, but we also knew that there were 10 immigrant workers uh, sleeping in one room in tenements in New York under uh, dramatically unhealthy conditions. And you wonder how is it that that, that could, could continue? Well, the answer when you look back at it is segregation took hold because the Supreme Court took away civil rights, took away voting rights, took away access to education and endorsed the separate but equal act. The income inequality was allowed to continue because the Supreme Court ruled the Sherman Antitrust Act unconstitutional. It ruled the income tax unconstitutional and it passed a case called Lochner to be New York that essentially uh, invalidated all labor regulations, including minimum wages and things like that. Think of all the suffering that those cases caused, those Supreme Court cases. One person dissented in all of them, and that was John Marshall Harlan. And his dissents were a mix of sort of legal doctrine, uh, you know, woeful analysis of how these decisions would affect people on the ground, and um, explanations of why essentially these cases violated the American spirit and, and the uh, the structure of laws that had been, um, you know, developed going back to the Declaration of Independence. Well, this this is what I mean. This is something really fascinating, right? You're talking about uh, a person who has who who thinks about the law as um, not just words on a page, not just theory, not just ideas, but how this will be experienced by Black people, and he knows how it will be experienced by Black people because he has this. Maybe a half, maybe a brother, half brother, maybe some kind of intimate relationship with a black person who, which you know, a lot of white people at that time and would not have had, maybe at least not not the ones on the Supreme Court. And I guess I wanted to give you, I wanted you to to sort of give us another beat or two on that because it's it's not just Plessy versus Ferguson. It's not just the the. Um, you know, separate but equal, which that's probably what he's, you know, that's what he's famous for. But you're talking about these economic rights um, as well. Why was it, why was he, why did he have access to knowledge of how the law would be experienced, you know, the practical implications on the ground for, for the poor or for, for labor rights? You know, what was it about his life that gave him this kind of moral clarity? And what was it about his, the other dudes on the Supreme Court that, that that lacked that so completely. <laughs> well, he he really he really did stand out for most of his tenure because of his background in Kentucky, and I think there were some things that bore on him really powerfully from that background. Uh, one was um, living in fear of the Civil War. People in Kentucky from the 1830s to the 1850s had this deep sense of foreboding that war was coming and that they were going to be caught in the middle. They were also a divided state themselves and people who cared about that state were horrified by the idea of division. 
And while Harlan was a young politician trying to enact compromises and you know, those compromises today, people look at it and say, aha, well, the compromises would have continued slavery, so therefore he was pro-slavery. I, I don't think that's entirely the whole picture. I think part of the picture is that he was um, a, a, uh, uh, a strong anti-war believer and wanted to put slavery on a sort of gradual path to, uh, to emancipation. On the other hand, uh, he was terrified of division, and he came to believe that inequality was a cancer in American life. There's also obviously a very different economic picture in Kentucky. It was not where the post-Civil War economic boom took hold. So after the Civil War, Harlan's own state suffered while his, uh, the, the people in the North experienced a tremendous boom. There was an unbroken string of Republican presidents from Lincoln to Grover Cleveland. But then when Grover Cleveland, the first Democrat became president, he was actually what they called a bourbon Democrat, which was a Wall Street, what we today would call a Wall Street Democrat. Um, and so you had something like 30 or 40 years where the only Supreme Court appointees tended to be pro-Wall Street conservatives. How did Harlan get in there? Um, he was chosen because of the special circumstances of the 1876 presidential election, which was disputed. And we all have heard the story about how Rutherford Hayes prevailed in the White House as his fraudulency, Rutherford fraud Hayes, uh, because of backroom deals that led to troops being removed from the South and a series of measures to appease the South. Well, one of them was a, a sort of veiled promise to appoint a Southerner to the court. Harlan was from Kentucky, so he counted as a Southerner. However, the Senate at the time was under control of Northern Republicans, radical Republicans who were much more progressive than Hayes. And so Hayes had to pick somebody who was acceptable to uh, Republicans who still believed that African-American rights were important and who saw African-Americans as part of the voting constituency behind the Republican Party. So in many ways, Robert Harlan vouched for John Marshall Harlan's credentials on that score at a time when people were very skeptical of John Marshall Harlan, which provided another point of, of connection between them. So he gets onto the court and he has all of these different reference points. Uh, for one thing, he's a Civil War veteran. The other justices are older. He actually saw fighting. He saw death. He saw destruction. He saw what inequality wrought in Kentucky and felt it much more strongly. I think a lot of the Northerners, their attitude towards slavery in the South was that it was this peculiar institution practiced by backward Southerners. And, you know, they, they objected to it, but they didn't sort of Sort of see it as closely as he saw it. And he came to believe it was a cancer. And, and he articulated that much later, actually, in his life, when the United States took over the Philippines, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, Cuba, in during the period of American imperialism. He was the main voice for the Constitution following the flag. He insisted on giving full constitutional rights to Filipinos and Hawaiians, saying, you cannot have two systems under one roof. You cannot have the Constitution in force in one place and then some cobbled together system by Congress in another place. He saw that as a, restora as a restoration of the kind of imbalances that led to, to civil war. So he's looking at things through a completely different set of eyes. One other huge influence on the other justices, <laughs> almost all of them were uh, enlightened Northerners who opposed uh, slavery, 
uh, were well-educated, went into the law at a time when being a lawyer meant, you know, hanging a shingle and doing traditional legal work and representation. As they grew older, railroads changed the economy dramatically. You know, suddenly the people who controlled the rails were able to control whole industries and distribution of goods throughout the country. And immediately there were pressure from various state governments and federal government to regulate the railroads, control the railroads, control their power. And this class of sort of nationally prominent lawyer emerged representing the railroads, crafting theories that could take on the US Justice Department and take on the best of the state prosecutors. And they became wealthy. They, some of them had you know, mansions that were as big as the Rockefellers mansions. And then they got appointed to the Supreme Court by Republican presidents. And those were the people who were writing the majority opinions that Harlan was telling. Um, by the way, can you hear me just fine? I'm wondering if my internet is stable. I can hear you. Okay. Um, you, you mentioned the, a bit about the relationship between these two men that you, that you uncovered. Uh, give us a tiny bit more of a taste. Absolutely. Uh, give um, us a tiny bit more of a taste of what, you know, a, an elite African-American man in the United States during that time would have been doing and seeing and how he could possibly help his white, Former master, half brother. What, what do you call? What do you call that relationship? I don't know. But um, tell us. Tell well, us. A, the, give the us relationship. A I mean, these 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 relationships were, um, uh, you know, deeply confusing and painful for the African Americans involved, and certainly confusing for whites who were, you know, in the family as well. Um, Robert Harlan is. Uh, an amazing figure. He was born in Virginia in an area near where James Harlan, who was John Marshall Harlan's father's mother's family had lived. And so he had relatives. So James Harlan would travel to Virginia from Kentucky to visit his relatives. And Robert was born there at a time when James Harlan was only 16. So some people would speculate later that this could have been some sort of uh, sexual initiation. That's one, one explanation for how he could be James Harlan's son. But what is known, because Robert Harlan became a prominent man and a lot was written about him, when he was eight years old, he and his mother undertook a 460-mile journey from Virginia to Kentucky through wilderness and all this with the idea that she was taking him to his father. Many of the accounts said he arrives in this place, Harlan Station, which is essentially like a family town. It's only Harlan's are living in this town. So the father pretty much had to be somebody in the Harlan circle that they were assuming. Some of the accounts said that they discovered that his father was dead and then he became uh, the property of James Harlan while the mother somehow got sold down south. Now, how these transactions transpired was never explained. Who was the original owner was never explained. How it was that James Harlan at age 24 takes possession of this eight-year-old boy never completely explained. What is explained and what Robert Harlan himself talked about later in life is that James Harlan took a tremendous interest in him. At the time that Robert came to live with James, he had recently married and started to have uh, children, eventually nine children with his wife. 
But in all of the accounts of Robert's life, you know, Robert was raised by James, not James and his wife, Eliza. By the time John is born, uh, Robert's a teenager. And then when John's a little boy, Robert is, you know, into his early 20s. And he is this sort of unique figure in the family. In one sense, he's known to be sort of a special favorite of the family patriarch who everyone else describes. And we know this partly because John's wife uh, wrote a posthumous memoir, a memoir after his death, um, that the father was considered this formidable figure, sort of a, a, a much respected, but sort of cold and remote man. And yet Robert's recollections of him were completely different. He was much more interactive with Robert. Um, all of the Harlan boys from the, the all white boys from James and Eliza's family were expected to be lawyers like their father and were sort of committed to this regimen of study. Uh, James wanted Robert to go to school too, but they wouldn't teach an African-American at the schools in Kentucky. So he was taught at home. But, um, but because of that, I think James actually gave Robert a sort of freedom of movement that none of the other kids had. So Robert became a pioneer in Kentucky horse racing because it was one of the few areas that African-Americans could compete equally. The reason for that was that a lot of the early horse owners, uh, owners of racehorses were slave owners and they would have their enslaved men serve as jockeys and trainers. So there was no barrier to African-Americans becoming involved, but it was a pretty rough hewn sport. So you had to go to these towns and essentially pulled together a race where there was no race course. <laughs> there were all these sort of betting rituals that had to be followed. You know, everyone had a gun. Uh, you know, the, the winnings had to be collected. So if you're John Marshall Harlan and you're a little boy in this regimen of study and who comes galloping over the horizon with a pocket full of money, a pouch full of money from a horse race, but Robert, this, uh, you know, sort of dashing avuncular figure. <laughs> I think that's the vision John Marshall Harlan had of Robert Harlan. But Robert Harlan then continued that same pattern of sort of finding places where African-Americans could be given a shot. So he goes to Lexington, which had a reputation, believe it or not, as a progressive city at that time uh, in, in Kentucky and um, opened a store and was successful for a while, but then, white vigilantes, a group called the Black Indians, of course, were neither Black nor Indians, they were, they were white terrorists, pushed him out. He then went to the gold rush and was a gold rush pioneer, got there before almost everybody and made a fortune, $90,000, which is uh, many millions in today's dollars. Uh, moved to Cincinnati, which is the end of the, uh, the terminus of the Underground Railroad, and invested in businesses, Black-owned businesses that, that freed slaves created for everything from grocery stores to photography parlors, because photography was the early technology African-Americans were able to get involved in that. He becomes sort of a leading citizen, the leading Black citizen of Cincinnati, then goes to uh, England to race horses uh, in Europe, sort of bring American horses to Europe in a kind of battle of the continents, and is this a famous man around the world, and then returns and becomes a civil rights leader after the Civil War, when Black rights are produced. I mean, you get this vision when you hear it, when I'm hearing you talk, and when, when we read these sections of the book, you get a vision of what the country could have been like. What had, had, uh, had 
a man like that been uh, given a chance? Had had Plessy not happened, had that had separate but equal never become the law of the land? I mean, yeah. I, it's just it's it's striking. And so, I, tell us tell us what happened to him at the end of his life after after that really devastating Supreme Court decision. Um, well, the rest of his life was was certainly not not a failure. We've only got him into that period of about 12 years when black rights were defended by the, by the uh, um, uh, Supreme Court. And, um, you know, he, he rose immediately to prominence. I mean, he became sort of the leading black politician in Ohio at a time when, again, black votes were the difference between Republicans winning and losing Ohio, which was the most important state at that time. So he was able to get patronage jobs for himself and others. He was able to play a role in creating a national African-American leadership with people like Frederick Douglass, where there would be conventions every year and meetings where they would put forward a national political agenda. He became personal friends with people like Ulysses Grant and Rutherford B. Hayes. He entertained lavishly. Uh, he um, did things like he started the first all-Black uh, National Guard battalion in Cincinnati. Um, all was not always peaceful on the um, political front in that there, was, there were uh, other African-American leaders who felt that he was too beholden to the Republican Party. There was a series of debates he had with a sort of rival, but who was sometimes a friend named Peter Clark, who believed that uh, neither Republicans nor Democrats were ever gonna serve black interests and that they needed to just be savvy and kind of negotiate with whites as a unified force. Um, Robert Harlan took the party line in that, in that case, but there was, a, there was almost like a Lincoln Douglas style debate between them in a place, Chillicothe, Ohio and stuff. Then what started to happen is um, after 1876, there was a consensus within the white community that sacrificing black rights was sort of the price of peace with South and you know, allowed business to continue as, as normal. White Southerners were never gonna accept uh, the equality of African-Americans and white Northerners stopped trying potentially. Because uh, voting rights were somewhat more secure in Ohio than in other states, the black community there retained some power and Robert Harlan retained some power and he even managed to get elected to the uh, state legislature. So it wasn't like there was a total failure, but you can see in the arc of his life after 1877 and he died in 1897, that it was sort of a slow period of disillusionment and loss. You know, uh, there started to be more racial incidents. Uh, there was a terrible confrontation between the uh, Black National Guardsmen and a group of white Democrats on a before an election eve that almost became a legendary riot and peace was sort of held partly because of Robert Harlan's efforts. Um, his son, who was a lawyer and a prominent man himself, uh, went to a, a uh, a theater took his took his children to a birthday party to a theater in Cincinnati and got forced to go up to the balcony and refused. And so, you know, here he was in the same city where he's serving as state representative, his grandchildren are plaintiffs in a in a case against racial segregation. So 
uh, it was a period of you know decline and dis disappointment. Nonetheless, he lived a, a buoyant, optimistic, exciting life. And there's, there's so many more anecdotes you can throw in there. This is a globe trotter who was, you know, gambling with General Santa Ana in Cuba and visiting Paris and all this kind of stuff. So um, he was an amazing man. But what's notable is that his descendants, all of whom were prominent in the African-American community, his grandson married John Mercer Langston's daughter, you know, there are all these, you know, they were, they were real sort of aristocracy within the black community, but there was no money in the black community. So they all sort of suffered in their own way, you know, prominent businesses started to die out and, you know, struggles for money and that kind of thing. And it, it just, you can see how segregation constrains black people. So I want to bring in some of the questions um, from the audience here. Uh, Edward Burke asks, as a lone dissenter, how well or not did Harlan get along with his colleagues on the court? That's a fascinating question. And there, there sort of are two answers. I think that he got along pretty well in terms of um, the basic social etiquette of the job. And even occasionally there's a story of him uh, sharing an apple on a streetcar with Justice McKenna, who was a frequent uh, frequently in the majority while he was dissenting. Um, on the other hand, I think that it was known that the, there was less decorum on the court generally in those days. Uh, when the income tax was ruled unconstitutional, there was some commentary about how he was intemperate on the bench and shaking his fist at Justice Field, who was a, a antagonist at various points. So I think some Supreme Court historians today will say, well, it was a little, you know, Wild West back then on the court. They weren't entirely practicing decorum. Interestingly, also, um, people in the Black community who paid more attention to John Marshall Harlan than any of the whites did, uh, people like Frederick Douglass would write about his tremendous courage and his willingness to, to stand up to all of his colleagues to stand up to the white community. And, and that's a consistent theme among, among black people. I will say there's nothing in his letters or in his, uh, the, the written record that's available now to show that he was himself ostracized for these positions, that he was receiving death threats, that he was getting, you know, his family was being harassed. They may have been, and they just chose not to collect those letters or not to let those stories go past. But there isn't any evidence of them, um, which, which leads me to believe in two things. One is because he was a lone dissenter, no one in the white community felt threatened by him. He was the only one. He was the eccentric. He was, you know, somebody uh, unthreatening but crazy in their mind. Um, the other is that in the Black community, I think there was this assumption that that whites were in collusion because whites sort of were politically in collusion. And a lot of these Northern justices were essentially closing their eyes and voting in cases where they felt like they were, they kind of knew they were doing the wrong thing, but they thought it was right for the country to try to repair relations with the South. And, um, and yet they did, you know, the black community may have seen it as a, a more insidious conspiracy than, uh, than it actually felt to someone like John Marshall. There's a, there's another question that said, wasn't there a gratuitous anti-Asian sentiment in Harlan's dissent, Plessy versus Ferguson? I think that's a that's a fair comment, um, but it's a more part of a more complicated story. There's a, 
a line in uh, Harlan's famous descent in Plessy v. Ferguson. This is a, a very, his, by far his most famous descent, and it's one that is frequently quoted today. It includes many sort of high iconic lines. The Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. And uh, the humblest is the peer of the most powerful. And there's no caste here. At another point in the descent, he says, there is a race that is so different from our own uh, uh, or a nationality or something that's so different from our own, whatever. I'm speaking of the Chinese race that we do not even allow them in this country. He said, and then he makes the point that nonetheless, Chinese people are allowed in the white coach and African-Americans were not. Mm. Now, I think in part, this was a reasonable legal point because the state of Louisiana was saying, everyone's being treated equally here. There's one place for blacks, one place for whites. And Harlan was making the point that really everyone knows the purpose here is to separate out blacks. It is not to separate whites or anything. And here's how one reason we know is there's no problem when, uh, when Chinese get in. Um, there was separately a Law Review article from about 25 years ago from somebody who I know and has read my book and blurbed the book even, uh, Gabriel Jackson Chin, Jack Chin, who sort of expanded the critique to look at how Harlan was not the hero to Chinese that he was to African-Americans. And I think if you keep it just at that point, that's, that's, that's true. Um, I don't think there's any evidence that he had any sort of particular animus towards Chinese. I don't think that I mean, there are some counterexamples. There was a Supreme Court case where the um, a terrible case where a gang of whites in California, you know, chased and harassed a group of Chinese. So they ended up taking refuge on a houseboat on the river that capsized and people died. Mm -hmm. And um, when they were uh, when they were prosecuted, the gang was prosecuted under Civil Rights Act. They claimed that the language of the act said uh citizens used the term citizens and the chinese were not citizens wow. nonetheless they were in this country as part of a treaty that said that they would be treated exactly like citizens nonetheless the court majority could not see through to that citizen being equal and all that and so they voided the prosecution of this white gang harlan stood up very forcefully in favor of the chinese defend i mean the chinese victims um in saying that like, you know, yes, it says citizen, but the treaty says that they're being treated like citizens. Therefore, these civil rights protections need to be extended to the Chinese. So it's a very mixed picture. And I think it's fair to say that not only was he a hero to African-Americans, but as he said, he stood up for Hawaiians and Filipinos and, and Puerto Ricans. He also was a famous Native American case where he was a forceful dissenter. Um, but, you know, his record in the Chinese case is a little more mixed. Um, so Sarah Peters is asking, do we know uh, much about his influences outside of this possible familial relationship? So can you give yes. us, tell us intellectually? He, um, he had other uh, contacts with African-Americans because he had, he had grown up in a, a slave owning family and he had a, you know, he had a wet nurse who was uh, African-American. Um, there's an incident where the daughter of his wet nurse had um, her dress caught on fire and he jumped to try to save her and all that and ended up almost dying himself of burns. Um, but that must have been true. He also of was, of, that must have been true of a lot of uh, white Southerners. They were raised by black women. 
They were. And um, beyond that, he also had a, a deep respect for Frederick Douglass. He had a, a, a longstanding relationship with Frederick Douglass. In addition, his daughter, his eldest daughter, uh, Edith, apparently taught in something called the Bethel Industrial School in Washington, which was a, a school for the children of uh, freed men and women to teach them industrial skills and um, help to get them jobs. And it was just, it was her charitable interest. But then she died of typhoid fever at 20, age 26. And Harlan, there's an anguished letter where he says, you know, every minute of every day is gonna be devoted to preserving her legacy. And he really was, she was really the heart and soul of the family. And so I think he was influenced by her care and concern for African-American children. Later in his life, he spoke frequently at, Was at Washington's Metropolitan AME. And he, um, he met, he would meet regularly with, with black lawyers. There was a case in Tennessee, a horrific lynching case that he intervened in pretty much single-handedly uh, to, to try to make sure that city officials who had allowed this lynching to take place were prosecuted. Um, so his, his efforts on behalf of African-Americans went way, way beyond his, his relationship with Robert Harlan. Um, so, so clearly he, um, you know, he, he was committed to the equality of, of African-Americans and he believed that this was a way of, of repairing the damages of slavery and, uh, uh, the horrors. And, and he, he came to believe, as I was saying, that inequality under the law was what caused the Civil War. It's what almost destroyed the American experiment in Republican government. And um, so he, he was deeply committed to, uh, to, to enforcing equality. Um, and I think that also informed some of his views in the economic cases. Um, uh, he, 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 because of Dred Scott, I think Dred Scott in 1858 was the moment when he believed the Civil War was inevitable and all that he had worked for was falling apart and that his state was made of crushed. So he understood what it meant for the Supreme Court to get it wrong. So unlike a lot of these other justices for whom it was sort of a theoretical challenge, you know, he really looked at these cases in terms of who was being harmed, who was being helped, how would this affect the country 50 years from now? And, you know, all of that was in his opinion. Um, we've got an anonymous questioner who says, can you comment on the way Harlan's colorblind constitution, formerly the beacon of civil rights, is today cited mainly to support claims of reverse discrimination, affirmative action, and similar policies? Uh, there's no question that, that that is an argument that the anti-affirmative action forces have made for a long time. Uh, it started with William Bradford Reynolds, who was the um, head of the Civil Rights Division under the Reagan administration and began a period of retrenchment uh, on some, some uh, civil rights protections. And he wrote an influential article in the New York Times sort of saying that, you know, Harlan is a hero, Harlan got it right. He said the constitution's colorblind, but colorblind means no affirmative action. Um, and that led to some, uh, you know, angry feelings, uh, obviously from opponents. Um, Thurgood Marshall, who was on the court then, and it was always an admirer of Harlan's and it put Harlan's descent in Plessy sort of in the heart of the civil rights movement in the middle 20th century. Thurgood Marshall uh, defended Harlan and said, um, the constitution is colorblind and if people had listened to Harlan, uh, we wouldn't have had 70 years in which it wasn't colorblind, which is why we need affirmative action. 
I think there's a little bit of a semantical kind of debate. I mean, when Harlan said the Constitution is colorblind, I don't think he meant to say, and therefore we will rule out any race-based remedies for past discrimination. Uh, I think that you know the challenge presented by affirmative action is an obvious one. Um, but if if Harlan's comment about the Constitution is colorblind were not such a powerful such a powerful statement, people would be arguing just about the concept of, of equality. You know, does equality allow for racial considerations uh, or, or uh, unlike affirmative act? All right, we have, um, are there any useful, Stephen Record? Are there any useful parallels to be drawn with the great dissenter of Rehnquist and uh, of the Rehnquist and Roberts courts, Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Which you know well, there are a lot there are a lot of parallels and and uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has cited Harlan as an influence uh, and she very late in life when she really embraced the role of dissenter she started praising um, great dissents from the past and would talk frequently about Harlan um, she would mention Benjamin Curtis also who was a Massachusetts justice who was the justice I had mentioned who um, who objected to Dred Scott. Um, but uh, I think that, that Harlan presents a, a sense of hope or offers a sense of hope to someone like uh, uh, fans of, or people like who, who are fans of Ruth Bader Ginsburg because you know, he showed how dissents in one era become majority opinions in another era and how the, those very documents and those very arguments and those very, um, those records that are preserved uh, can become part of the decision-making process in the next generation. And there's no one method for, for the Supreme Court by which the Supreme Court can change its mind and the law can change. But if you look at the history of Harlan's dissents, almost all of these methods combine. So let's look about the antitrust cases, the Sherman Antitrust Act being, being declared unconstitutional in a horrible case called EC Knight. The Sugar Trust controlled 98% of the sugar production in the country. If the Supreme Court found a way to say, no, they weren't a monopoly. Um, Harlan was the sole dissenter and a forceful sole dissenter railing against these giant combinations, whatever. Um, pretty much within five years, is the same justices who had ruled the other way began to kind of see the light. I don't know that it was so much Harlan was persuading them. It may have been things that were happening in the country was persuading them. but. There are examples of the same people literally changing their mind on this. You know, Oliver Wendell Holmes changed his mind on the First Amendment in a number of cases. So it, within Harlan's lifetime, they greatly relaxed the rules and allowed for more uh, antitrust actions. But it took maybe 15 or 20 years until they got to a position where they were really allowing antitrust actions. That's the very positive example. In the income tax case, which was a five to four decision and a shocker, and they overruled a hundred years of precedent, and you know a case where everyone was rolling their eyes afterwards, it took a it took a constitutional amendment to allow the income tax. But to get the process rolling, the big obstacle was less getting um, the states to ratify it as to get Congress, which was full of rich people, especially the Senate, to accept it. And this congressman, Cordell Hull, who later would go on to be Secretary of State under Franklin Roosevelt, uh, he would read Harlan's dissent on the floor of the House. Uh, 
as a way of showing how wrongheaded the original decision was and how important it was for an amendment to, to uh, remove it uh, and overrule it. So that's one example. The Lochner case gets overruled in time because of Franklin Roosevelt's threat to expand the court, the so-called switch in time that saved, saved nine. Um, you know, in 1965, 1954, 1965, both of Harlan's dissents in Plessy v. Ferguson were part of the, the actual arguments in the Brown case in 54, and his dissent in the civil rights cases of 1883 were part of the actual arguments in, in a case that overturned that in 1965, called part of Atlanta. Vindication. <laughs> Talk about vindication. It was real vindication, but it came in so many different forms. So, uh, but nonetheless, if you are Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the last years of your life, yes, you can applaud Benjamin Curtis for taking a principled stand and leaving the court after Dred Scott, but Harlan is actually the better example in terms of how your actual views can become part of the law. <clears throat> I've got, we've got uh, three more questions and only 12 more minutes or, so I, let, let me get through these and then we'll, I want to close out with sort of a bigger thought about today um, and bringing this book forward. Um, we'll, do, we'll do a lightning round. I'll give a quicker answer. <laughs> so Ellen Berry, um, a former oh. Globe, uh, who, who we love, uh, is now a fantastic reporter of the New York Times, um, writes, Harlan was from Kentucky, not a, not a Northern state or a Southern state. To what extent did this inform his worldview and legal thought? Was there a school of legal thought from the border states or was he singular? Uh, there was a school of thought from the, from the border states and he, um, he frequently paid tribute to his professors at Transylvania University Law School for putting, putting that view forward. Um, there were some things that were problematic in that school of thought. And I, I think this, this also might be a critique of some of Harlan's views in that um, they were, uh, the elites in Kentucky were uh, constitutional unionists. Uh, that is that they believed in a national destiny. They believed the US constitution, not, not state rights, but a, a sort of a federal single destiny awaited the United States. Um, this, the part of that that was a little excessive is that they were in love with the idea that the United States was a, a unique experiment and that people in America were the only place where people were not under the thumb of authority. And it made them skeptical of immigrants. So some of those professors that he was admiring in Transylvania University were also people who joined the Know Nothing Party called the American Party that he had also briefly been associated with uh, that were known for their anti-Catholic feelings and in, in some cases, you know, anti-British and other anyone who was living under an authoritarian force. The theory, the legal theory being that they, they didn't understand democracy, they were subservient. Um, uh, that, you know, that's probably too literal a kind of question. I think that Kentucky influenced him in a lot of ways, as we had mentioned earlier. Um, uh, it's different economy, uh, not based on uh, capital and uh, investments and, you know, tremendous imbalances of wealth, uh, gave him a sort of a different perspective. Uh, and, you know, while its racial situation was, was horrendous, uh, there was interaction with African-Americans, which none of the Northern justices had at all. Um, 
And the fact that the Ku Klux Klan was asserting itself so strongly in Kentucky, I think also gave him a sort of moral impetus to take some of the racial stances later on. All right, Nancy McArdle asks, I understand that he was a fundamentalist Christian uh, uh, of the time. What do you know about how his faith may have influenced his thought and decisions? This is a, this is a difficult question to answer. And, and I probably shied away from it a little too much just because I think that, you know, Theology is a very difficult thing to um, to grasp, obviously. And I don't have a PhD in theology, so I can't I can't definitively make comments on this. I will say several things. He he was a, a devout Presbyterian, um, and there were two doctrines that I think could have him substantially. One was his home uh, preacher, who was a, a famous uh, theologian of his time. Um, believed in this idea that God has. Uh, a divine plan for everything. And I think that early in Harlan's life in the 1850s, when you say, how can you be uh, aware of the injustices of slavery and yet allow slavery to continue and still be part of a slave owning family, uh, the view among the uh, enlightened Presbyterians was that God had a plan. Hmm. And they would say, you know, God wants, they, they, was, they would preach the sort of, um, uh, master servant, you know, relationship and that, you know, you have to be kind and you have to be, you know, uh, reliable and they acknowledge the humanity of people in the subservient position and, and the church that he went to had black parishioners as well um, in a different part of the church. But, um, but they also had this idea that, you know, it's all part of mysterious God's plan, which I think may have prevented action. By contrast, there's another uh, doctrine that was um, uh, the sort of spiritual agency where, you know, people can, people on earth should live out God's values hmm. uh, that later in his life may have given him sustenance in being a, a lone dissenter. Um, that, you know, he, he you know, there's a, there's a line, Frederick Douglass wrote him a letter after the, uh, soul dissent in the civil rights cases of 1883, which was a crushing blow for Douglas. And Frederick Douglass said, I'm reminded of something that I would say during the time when people felt abolition would never happen. And I say this to you, one man with God is a majority. And I think Harlan came to believe that, that if you're on God's side, you're, you're good. It's a great line. That's a great line. Um, a couple of uh, people have asked similar questions. Uh, they're asking about um, whether uh, there was any, what was the biggest challenge? I'm in researching this book and I'm, I'd love to know what was the biggest surprise? Uh, you know, you're, you're in there trying to sort of dig through history to, to create a, a, a mental picture of a man and, and really chart well, how he's changed his life. What, what, what were the biggest challenges and sort of did, was there anything that you just shocked you? Well, the biggest challenge was in um, in assessing the relationship with Robert Harlan because there were no letters between them in the second half of their life. And you, we have no idea why. It could just be shoddy record keeping. None of Robert Harlan's letters were collected. John Marshall Harlan had spotty letter record keeping. So it just could be an accident. It could be that they didn't talk. It could be that Robert was traveling to Washington regularly because his son was living there. So they may have talked a lot and just didn't have a chance to write letters. So right. I think that's the biggest frustration is that we just 
don't know much at all about the second half of their lives. We know things that from third parties referring to things that there were contacts and that, you know, there was, it wasn't like there were, the, the Harlan stopped talking to Robert and vice versa, but we don't have communications between the two of them. That was a, a frustration. Um, a surprise to me was just how bad the Supreme Court was during that era, because again, in law school, you're taught to respect these decisions and these justices. And I have to say, all the decisions that were talked about on both sides, um, there are glimmers of you know sharp legal thinking in some of these decisions, but mostly they're just abominations. I mean, you know, nobody today, nobody you know on the right, nobody on the left is is going to endorse these decisions. Uh, it's it's just a it's kind of shocking how bad they are when you when you go through them, um, and uh, so you know when you're when you're talking about that long a period on the Supreme Court and you're talking about the history of the United States and you're talking about this personal story and this personal relationship, it's a lot to tie together. So so all of those uh, all these challenges kind of combined into one. So we've got five minutes left. Jay Wilberforce asks. Is this is something that came in my mind too? Is Harlan County, Kentucky, named after Harlan or his family? This is Harlan. Um, Harlan, is, Harlan, <laughs> Harlan. I wish I had a more authoritative answer. I've been told no, but I don't. Uh, <laughs> I don't. I haven't like researched it closely. It's it's kind of shocking that it, it wouldn't be. But people say, oh no, it's a different Harlan. So I, I, I must be. It must be a different Harlan within the same two Harlan brothers who went to. Virginia and founded Harlan Station, but um, but it's not named after him. <laughs> um, well, so I guess take us, bring us up to today. We have a Supreme Court that's uh, got a majority, much more conservative than the American people. Um, I, I mean, what, how do you, how should we read this history uh, with an eye to today? Who is who is the great, you know? I guess who has the moral clarity today, or how how can we when you when you look back at this past, what does it tell you about the story we're living right now? Um, it tells me that it's a terrible mistake for the Supreme Court to um, allow itself to a kind of negate. The will of the people. I'm thinking more of the economic cases. And I realize that some people can say in the race cases, it's sort of the opposite, right? That, you know, the, the problem in the race cases was that they only defined the people as white people. But um, in the economic cases, you had a will to change the country starting in the early 1890s because there was the panic of 1893. It was a time. So you, you know, Congress passed the Sherman Antitrust Act, they passed an income tax. Which, which had the effect, just to explain it, because the federal government was funded by tariffs. You know, tariffs, a uh, tariff on a loaf of bread would affect the penniless immigrant the same as it would affect the richest person on Fifth Avenue. Um, the income tax was only applied to people above a certain income, so it was more, much more burdensome to the rich. And it was also seen by the rich as like opening the door to much higher levels of taxation and ever graduating levels of taxation. Um, so it was much, much more progressive. Um, and, uh, and yet the Supreme Court essentially because of class bias found uh, pretexts that again, even the most conservative justices today would not endorse or accept 
to essentially overturn the will of the people and the will of the country. That, that's not the purpose of the Supreme Court. By the same token, uh, when you look at the race cases, for one thing, it's not as it's not it's not simply the case that um, white people were unanimously against some of these protections for African Americans. Uh, the civil rights cases of 1883 invalidated a law that was passed by Congress in 1875 and signed by the president. So that's not some you know far thing. I also think when you get to to uh, to Plessy v. Ferguson, it, it is entirely possible you know, that the, the court could have ruled the other way. Uh, you know, it would have infuriated the South and stuff, but the country was accustomed to having the South be infuriated by things at various points. It was just a lack of moral courage in that case. It's just breathtaking as an African-American to read about this period of time where we literally go backwards with, with rights, with, uh, you know, in so many, in so many ways, um, you know, we're used to learning about history as a, you know, an arc bending towards justice. But there are times you go backwards, and um, you know, it's amazing to think about where we'd be today if people had listened, listened to him.